Good, good. Try that again with the camera on and the microphone unmuted. That's going to work a lot better as I say good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End. Um, I am a technical wizard when it comes to pressing all the right buttons at all the right time. I never make a mistake. And I never have to go back and restart the program because I hit the wrong button at the wrong time. Y'all know that by now, right? But it's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, May 24th already. It is just uh, rolling along. Um, 2022 is just almost halfway, getting close to halfway done already. That is amazing. Um, but it's good to be with you today. Of course, my name is Jonathan Jenkins, and this is From the Deep End. We are here every Monday through Thursday uh, from 8 a.m. Eastern to uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we have two different parts of this program for those who may not uh, have been a part of it before. Um, we have uh, a an hour where we just sit around and we talk about Bible questions, Bible thoughts, whatever you have. You direct uh, the um, direction of the program. Uh, you control the content of it. Whatever you want to ask about, whatever you want to um, uh, uh, see if I have any thoughts about, you are more than welcome to try. I always do reserve the right to say, just don't know uh, and have to move along. But uh, you, uh, you do control the direction that we take each morning. Uh, I hope you find that good. I, I, we started doing that oh, probably a couple of months ago now at this point. I used to try to come up with a variety of stuff, and about half the time, y'all would interrupt me with some other uh, <laughs> some other kind of uh, uh, question anyway, so I said, you know, let's just do that. I, I enjoy the spontaneity of it, and I got to tell you, it's a, uh, it is a, a mental and biblical exercise for me every morning, too, because I have no idea I can't prep for it. I have no idea what you're all about to ask me. So um, uh, it is a challenge uh, sometimes, uh, but uh, we do the best we can with it. And hopefully uh, you are enjoying this format. Uh, you must have some uh, liking for it because you keep asking me questions. So uh, if you have any of those, go ahead and put those in and we will um, uh, uh, turn our attention to there. Um, now, as always, Bible related doesn't have to be exactly about the Bible, but Bible related or um Alabama football. That one, that is always acceptable too. Alabama football is always acceptable. Um, but um, uh, second hour of the program, we do a textual study. And for the first time in the history of this program, our textual study will be something other than Romans. Ta-da! Uh, we are going to be doing, uh, for I think two days, uh, we're going to be doing the book of Jude. Because uh, with my schedule, um, that seemed like a good thing. Because I think I can get Jude done in two days. Um, maybe not as thoroughly as as uh, did some things on Romans. Because you know how long it took me to get through chapter eight, right? Um, the um, uh, but I think I can do a Jude service in a couple of hours. Um, but uh, you know, Julie has her um, uh, treatment up at the Mayo Clinic that I have to take her to this Thursday. So we will not we will not be on Thursday. Uh, so I have today and tomorrow for this week, and then Monday is Memorial Day. And uh, somebody asked me last night about what, what our plans were for Memorial Day for Connect, and hadn't really thought about for um, uh, from the deep end. So I just decided uh, overnight that you know what, what I'll, since if I do Jude, I take Tuesday and Wednesday get Jude done. Then I don't want to start a new topic on Thursday. Won't be here Thursday, and then let me just take Monday, and we'll have the. Uh, I give me four or five days off in a row, and I won't necessarily argue with that. Um, and so that's that's my plan. So we'll go ahead and take Monday off next week. Um, so 
be a little bit, of, little bit of a gap after tomorrow. We'll do Wednesday's program, and then we'll be back. Next time we'll be back is actually six days. Wow. Uh, we'll be back next Tuesday, and then do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, next week. Um, somebody just asked, uh, where, who just, I just saw it. Where did it go? Uh, Christine asked if my parents were home yet. I think so. I think they got back Sunday. I haven't talked to my dad since he got in. I probably should reach out to him today. Um, since we're not going to be on Thursday, so I'll, I'll reach out to him today and see if he wants to be on to do his normal appearance with us on uh, what, what normally do, normally does it on Thursday. See if he wants to do his normal appearance with us um, on on Wednesday. So that's what we'll do. Um, and hopefully he'll be able to be back on with us. Um, and that would be that would be encouragement as well. Um, Jonathan, ask, uh, suggesting more questions uh, or more uh, topics for our uh, second hour. Study of general biblical introduction, which includes a stu study of translations. Um, yeah, yeah, we could do that. that that's actually a really good study. Uh, it's, 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 oh, man, it was, it was, a, it, it was a tough, tough, tough uh, study in, in, at, at, at the, at the school of preaching. Uh, I don't know who taught you, Jonathan, uh, but uh, Mosier taught it when I was going through the Memphis School of Preaching. The only class, the only class in which I got a B. I was very upset. I did not want, at least only biblical class in which I got a B. I have another story about my English class, and I'm really not happy about that one. I still, 30 years later, still have an issue there. But the only textual class I got a B in, and I think the grading scale is 95 to 100, and I think he gave out three tests and a paper, something like that. I think there were four grades, and all four of my grades, I think, were 92. I made four 92s in the class, ended up with a B plus. I was so mad. Just that class got me, though. I, I just that class got me. Um, so um, it's a really good study. Uh, it is, and if 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 it's faith building in the sense that you. Um, uh, let me let me stop and say it's not what it sounds like. Okay, uh, for those who may not know what that means, uh, a general biblical introduction class is not a class where you actually look at the biblical text and say, you know, you might think a general biblical introduction. You're going to talk to me about the themes of the Bible uh, or something along those lines. Um, it's not. It's more along the lines of how did we get the Bible? Um, how was it? How was it compiled? Um, what textual evidence is there for it? It's a study of all of the things behind the Bible uh, and, and about its creation. So you, you end up studying the text. And as a part of it, as Jonathan says, you'll end up studying about translations. If you go far enough in it, you'll end up studying about uh, translations. Um, for a long time, the standard book in the field was Geisler and Nix. I think the book was just entitled General Biblical Introduction. I'm not sure if that has been supplanted in 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 colleges and universities yet or not. I don't, it's been a while since I've had that thought. So that was my text. And that was a text for a lot of guys in that, in the era that I went through, that was just the standard book. Um, Neil Lightfoot's book on how we got the Bible is a little dated now at this point, but that's a very, that's a, that's an easier read. Um, but th there's, there's a lot of good material out there and it's a really strong faith building type thing. It's a really good study. So I'll put that in the hopper. It'd be a little bit more work for me in terms of um, um, putting it together. Uh, so I may have to, I might have to lean a little more heavily on somebody else's, uh, somebody else's work. Cause that's, that's not, not something that I am natively, um, you know, 
uh, knowledgeable about. Uh, it's not something I've done my own personal research on. I have to draw from other sources. So I would have to, have to, that would take me a little bit more effort to get done, but it'd be a really good study. So I'll, I'll maybe not immediately, because again, it would take me some time um, to get it put together, but I'll, I'll put that in, on the list because that, that is a unique study and one that probably uh, should be done at some point. Uh, and then a study on the New Testament church. <laughs> were, were, were you here last night for Connect and Ben Phillips? You got one last night. Uh, you, you really got one last night. Uh, but that would be good. We could we could do something like that. Not would not would not be an exceedingly long study. So maybe one of those where I can put put it in uh, between a couple of other uh, books or something like that. Do good ideas there, man. I, I like both of those. Um, uh, see what else we have down here. And I got Christine's question about the family being home. Uh, ah, there, there's me one. There's me one. Uh, where, where did it go? Hold on. There we go, Jonathan. There you go. Coming back. Double it up. Give me two questions in a row. How many losses will Bama have this year? There we go. <laughs> They're going to be favored in every game they play. They're going to be favored in every game they play. So uh, the, the hope is zero. The hope is zero. Um, most concerned about? Hmm. Well, I guess you'd have to be most concerned about A&M. Georgia's not on the schedule. Um, Texas, Texas is loaded on offense, but they're young. And uh, Ewers, or whatever his name is, has never seen the pass rush that Alabama's coming with this year. Quarterbacks are going to be running for their lives if Alabama stays healthy. That They're going to be running for their lives. It's just, it's not, it's not right what Alabama's going to be bringing from the defensive line. So hopefully... Um, Hopefully none of the uh, none of the issues, uh, none of the injury issues we've had in recent years. If Bama stays healthy, it's gonna it's gonna be a tough out. It's, it's gonna be tough for anybody to get them. Uh, there's a little stretch right in the middle of the season. I think it's like Arkansas, Tennessee, and A and M in succession. If we can get through that section undefeated, I don't think anybody will beat us. But that that's I think two of them are on the road. I think A and M's at home, and I think Arkansas and Tennessee are both both on the road. And I don't think we have any bye weeks. That that's going to be a tough. Arkansas's physical. Tennessee's better than people might think they are. At least they look like they might be. And then AM, it's going to be a bloodbath against AM. Uh, especially with all the things going on between Saban and and uh Fisher right now. So that that's gonna be fine. Um anyway, moving on. Well, sort of moving on. Travis asked, what's the pictures behind you on each of the pictures behind me? Well, um there is the Birmingham News headline from Alabama's victory over, that's LSU, 2011. Um, that is the Sports Illustrated from Alabama's victory over Texas. Um, that's a sport, that's a Sports Illustrated over LSU. That's a picture of Marcel Darius returning an uh, interception against Texas in the national championship game. That's Bryant Diddy Stadium from several years ago before the expansions. Um, that is a my ticket stub from when we all went out to Pasadena at the for the Rose Bowl for the uh, Alabama Texas National Championship game 2009, and that is the headline from I think the Birmingham News from Alabama's national championship in 1992 over uh, over. Uh, Miami. So that's what's on the wall behind me. Thank you for the question. Tammy, 
why does God allow so much suffering in children? Okay, we just changed tones. We just changed tones a little bit here in the program. That's all right. Um, why does God allow so much suffering in children? I assume you mean actual children, not like his children, right? I'm assuming that question means his, um, his, um, um, or uh, in, in small children. Um, the, um, the, the answer, to, the, I'm, I'm hesitating here because this is a, a question that you can answer quickly or a question you can spend more than the entire, entire hour on. And I'm trying to debate in my head real quick uh, how much to get into this. Um, the, the, let me just go with the short answer. And if you have, if you need me to follow up with it all, I, I will. So I'll try to pay attention to anything y'all might say in the, uh, in the comment section as we go through here. But to me, the short answer is, is, is actually pretty simple. And, and it has to do with the nature with which he, he created us. Right, you have to understand the intent, what, what God's intention was in creating the world. Uh, and his intention was the same intention that, that we have when, when, we have, when we procreate, when we create children. Um, on some level, it's about um, um, it, it, when, you, when you have a child, you're not, you're not trying to, you're not, you're not buying a puppy. You're not buying something that will be unquestionably devoted and loyal to you. Okay. When you want that, you buy a puppy, but you understand that puppy is never going to be a companion. That puppy is never going to uh, expand upon what, what, what you have done or any, anything it, that, that it's a pet. It's, it's not, it's not that it's not you. Um, and that's not what God, what God was after. He wasn't trying to create a puppy. I mean, he literally did create puppies. So he could have done, he could have created a world for him to <clears throat> observe with a whole bunch of puppies on it that, that were, you know, the, the lion does exactly what God wants it to do day after day after day after day, because it's programmed to do exactly what God wants it to do day after day after day after day. He could have created that world. He didn't. Instead, he created that world and then put a being like him, made in his image, onto that world so we could experience it, so we could share in it, so that he could share it with us. The problem is, when you create a being like you, when you have a child, that child is not a puppy. That child, in order to be like you, must have the same characteristics that you have. And one of the characteristics of God is the right of self-determination. Nobody tells God what to do. He is sovereign. He does what he wants to do. Okay? That's what he made. He made finite beings because he's not making an infinite being. By definition, you can't, that's a logical paradox. And not even God can overcome a logical paradox. You cannot create an infinite being. Because by the act of creation, that being is no longer infinite. That's just a logical paradox you cannot overcome. That's like the question: Can God make a rock too heavy? To, can God make a rock too heavy that he, that he can't pick it up? Okay, that's just a logical. It's a nonsensical question. That okay, that doesn't make any sense. When you when God made a being in His image, a finite being in His image, the result is we have the right of self determination. We are sovereign within our own actions. Right? We have that we have sole control over the actions that we take. We have volition. 
And so, just like, just as when you have a child, that child is you you turn that child loose in the world, and that child is going to do things that you never imagined that that child would ever do. Now, is it still worth it for you to have the children? Absolutely. That's why we keep doing it, generation after generation after generation after generation. We keep doing it because it's worth it. So that's what God did. He made beings with the right of self-determination because in order for us to, to experience what he was trying to experience us, have us experience, it's in order for us to be uh, um, uh, a, a companion of his, if you will, he had to create us with sufficient um, volition, sufficient intelligence, um, and, and, and all of those characteristics, you know, the, 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 the ethical guys that, that the, the one that went going through school, you take a class on values and ethics every now and again, when you're doing anything in the liberal arts, philosophy, Bible thing, eventually you're going to take a class in, in ethics. Um, and one of the phrases they keep using in those, in those, in those classes is the term of free moral agent. We are free moral agents. We have the freedom to make moral decisions. If God had stripped that away, we would be a puppy. We would be no different than the lion that he are, he would, he would make. And that's not what God was after. So that's the simple answer. He made us free moral agents. And in order to accomplish that, which he wants to accomplish with us, we have to be free moral agents. And since we are finite, we will eventually choose wrong. We will eventually choose the wrong thing. And too often when we choose the wrong thing, those wrong choices begin to multiply and to multiply and to multiply. And the short, the short answer is eventually children get hurt because we do incredibly stupid things, incredibly evil things. Could God step in and absolutely put an end to it? Yes. And in fact, one day he will. Could God step in and put an end to it while at the same time maintaining the integrity of the creation that he made? No. Because in order to put an end to it, short of burning it down, which one day he will, short of burning it down, he would have to change the nature of every single person so that we would become puppies and would no longer be able to experience all of the all the beauty and all, all of the wonder that, that is the world and that is the mind of God that we get we get to learn about through his word. Now, it's a lot more complex than that, but to me, that's the simplest answer. God made us to be free moral agents. And since we are, and since that is integral to the creation that he made, he has to tolerate until he's ready to wrap this thing up. He has to tolerate that we make the wrong choice, just like you do with a child. Still worth it to, still worth it to have the child, but that child is not always going to do exactly what you want him or her to do. Just not. So... I don't know if that helps or not, but that's um, 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 that's where that's where I go. Uh, that's that's how I get at least part of it um, uh, answered. So if you want more comment on that, um, um, feel free. Uh, I, if, I'd be glad to um, um, talk about it more with you. Um, see what we have here. Uh, anything else? Um, uh, so Moser still teaches general biblical introduction, and Jonathan says, I think I had an A in that class. Yeah, that's because he got soft. Moser got soft. <laughs> uh, he says, Moses uses the book, God, the book God Breathe by, uh, by, by Brother Moser. Huh, okay. I mean, since he wrote the book, that'd be a good book for him to use in the class. 
I thought that'd be a that would be good one for you to use in class. Um, let's see what else we got. Uh, Melissa asked, "Did you ever preach a sermon before going to MSLP?" Uh, that's a good, odd question there. Um, did I ever preach a sermon before I went to Memphis? Yes, I did. Um, just like I, I suppose, like most guys did, uh, uh, just in the local church. Did I ever do a? I'm trying to think if I ever did a full. I don't think I did. I don't think I ever did like a full. Where the, did the full service on a Sunday. I don't think I ever had the opportunity to do that. I'm just trying to remember if I did. I think the first time, I know, I don't say this, I know the first time when the entire Sunday was mine, when I was the quote-unquote preacher for the entire day, Bible class, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, the, in the traditional three-service Sunday that we, um, that, that, that has characterized things for so long. Uh, I know the first time I did that was in September of 92. Um, so about a month or so after I got to Memphis, uh, Garland Elkins, of all people. If you don't know who Brother Garland Elkins was, uh, he passed, what, several years several years ago at this point. But um, Brother Elkins was not a insignificant figure. Uh, he was a rather, uh, it, well, one of the most gen gent genteel and gentle men I've ever come across. Um, you know, some professors will get, get bo boisterous in class, raise their voices if they're trying to make a point. Brother Elkins always seemed to go the other direction. And it, it, it when he went the other direction and got quiet and just made a, a, he didn't like the way somebody was acting in class. I remember one time, one of the fellow students um, made a flippant comment of, as we were reading the text together. He just make a, you know, a, a bad joke, a little flippant joke. And Brother Elkins, just with not a hint of anger or anything in his voice, said just very, very softly, very quietly, something along the lines of, Joe, I don't think we should treat the, the, the Bible that way or something like that. I mean, it was just, just, and there was not, not a hint of, and man, I'll tell you, that room just went, <laughs> it's like everybody in the room is like, nope, <laughs> we're done right here. Now, we talked about Brother Mosier already, already a couple of times. Keith Mosier goes the other direction. Uh, Keith Keith will, yeah, he, he got some fire in him when he comes to the classroom. Uh, and strangely enough, after a couple of years of having Keith in the classroom, you know, he goes off on one of his things. And like, ah, it's just Keith being Keith, <laughs> you know, but but not, not with Brother Elkins. Man, it was, he was, oh, but anyway, um, Brother Elkins came to me one day and said, hey, Jonathan, you want to fill in for, I got to go do a gospel meeting. You want to fill out for me? It was in Stanton, Tennessee. Um, and man, at the thought of preaching your first Sunday and you're standing in Garland Elkins pulpit, have mercy, have mercy. I was scared to death, scared to death. Um, I think I preached, uh, I don't remember the Bible class. I have no idea what that was. Um, and I don't remember the Sunday night sermon either. I've got it somewhere in a folder. The Sunday morning sermon was on um, um, uh, the, the the armor of Christ, I think. It wasn't exactly Ephesians 6. It wasn't just an analysis of each part of the, the armor of Christ, but it was about being in God's army, something along those lines. I can't remember exactly, but that's uh, that's where it came from. But uh, yeah, so... Not, not as much as some guys, you know, as Melissa, some guys have do a lot of preaching before they ever decide to go to school. Uh, I was did a lot more. What actually got me wanting to go off to be um, 
a preacher was just um, uh, two things, actually. Uh, there was, uh, I was working for an air conditioner subcontractor. Uh, I had, you know, I started back at Fred Hardeman as a computer science major back in the late 80s. Um, and Julie and I had gotten married basically straight out of high school, went up to college, and uh, took us took us a while to figure out how you make babies, apparently, because we kept having them. <laughs> we, we just kept having them. Uh, and so I, I stopped uh, college and started working because somebody had to pay for all these babies that we were making. So I ended up working for an AC subcontractor eventually. And the, that that uh, AC company was run by uh, a member of the church uh, down at Palm Beach Lakes where my dad still is and by Jehovah's Witness. And everybody that was on the cruise was either a member of the Church, church of Christ or was Jehovah's Witness. And uh, the foreman that I was in the, in the van with all day was Jehovah's Witness. And we ended up having Bible studies on the job and in the van all the time. Uh, and so I kind of got into the habit of having Bible discussions all the time with people that are outside of the church. The second thing was a guy by the name of Buzz um, was an IT guy. And that was my, you know, was what I was, I'm, supposed to be, I'm supposed to be sitting in a cubicle right now writing code. That, that, that was what I envisioned my life being. Um, and that's actually, I still really enjoy doing that kind of stuff, but it's, my skills are 30 years old at this point. I, I can't really do it anymore because everything's passed me by so far. It's not even funny. Um, but, uh, back before the internet was a thing, uh, even back before for the, for those of you who've been around, uh, what was it? It's, uh, uh, Prodigy, CompuServe, uh, AOL. Back when you actually had to dial in to, you didn't dial into the internet because the, the, the internet with the servers weren't, it wasn't all networking connected yet. You know, Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL started basically as their own individual call-in things. And so you would call in and you would get, you would get connected to the Prodigy servers. And Prodigy had all kind of message boards and a few games and applications on that. And then eventually those things started getting connected and you could actually get information from around the world and so on. But even before that, um, the early days of networking were local bulletin boards, BBSs, uh, and they were hosted usually in homes. I mean, there were some like colleges, like when I was when I was in at, at Fried Hardeman, and and I was trying to get um, uh, code written. Uh, we could call into the server. You put, you know, the, you remember those old school modems that had the two cups on the other end and you would actually take the receiver and you would stick it on the, on it. Um, it was a 300, three, uh, 300. I think it was a 300 baud connection. For those who know how slow that is, it literally there's, there's, there's eight bits on every character. When you see on a screen, it's old school, there's eight bits on every character. Okay. Um, so a 300 baud modem was basically it could in in one second what's 300 divided by eight? Uh, what's that? Somebody do the math on that for me. So it well, okay, I'll just do it right here. 300 300 by 10 would be 30, so 30 35 maybe. So at most, when it was working properly, you could upload 35 characters per second onto a screen. To, from transfer from one computer to the other. So I would call into the server to compile some code that I had written, and I could literally sit there and watch as it printed, you know, at when it was good, it was 30, 30 something characters per second. I mean, there, there were days where it was like one character at a time just popping up on the screen. That's where it started. But 
Um, so universities had some of that stuff, but um, uh, a lot of these things were just hosted in people's homes. And so you would, they would put up a dedicated phone line in their home and you'd call in and it would actually be a physical computer sitting in their house and that would run the bulletin board. Well, a guy named Buzz at Palm Beach Lakes was a real IT guy, real geek. He had one. It was a religious-based uh, bulletin board and it serviced everywhere, you know, because it was long distance to call into this distant one. So you did it to a local one. And he had a crowd of probably 40 or 50 people that called in to his bulletin board. And it was all uh, Bible-related Bible discussions. And so I spent my nights trying to get on the bulletin board because you couldn't always get on because it was a single phone line. So if somebody else was on the phone on all the server, you had to wait for them to get off. So that thing was busy all the time. So it was limited to how many people could get on or you had to get on at some kind of really odd hour of the day in order to, 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 to make the connection. Uh, and that's where it started. I was doing Bible discussions with people that I still have never met. I never, never, never met them. Um, and just got to doing a lot of Bible, Bible discussions that way. And that kind of triggered, Hey, this is something I should be doing. And that's how I started. I don't know if you probably a lot more than you wanted, Miss Lissa, but there it is. That's where it came from. Um, um, let's see. Let's see what we got here. Uh, Sherry asks, did you say the name of a good source for studying the book of Psalms? I am not a poet. I don't think I did say one. Um, good source on studying the book of Psalms. Um, I haven't read the, uh, the Truth for Today uh, that uh, put out by uh, Eddie Clover and that group over at Harding. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know that I've read their volume on Psalms, but I'm sure it's good. Um, there are, I'm trying to think of, on the whole of the Psalms, I know my favorite book on the Psalms is just a book entitled Notes on the Psalms by G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan was a, um, it's from the mid, prominent, prominent in the mid 20th century, 1950s or so, uh, Presbyterian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he was the, he was the long-term preacher at the, it's gotta be Presbyterian because he was at the Westminster, uh, the Church of Westminster there. Um which would be the most prominent Presbyterian pulpit you could get. Um, and he's, he's Presbyterian, so I have some doctrinal issues with him along the, along, along the line. But if you can ever, I don't know of a, anybody I've ever read after that is better at, at, at seeing movement within text uh, than G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, he, his doctrine sometimes is funny. I, he's weird doctrinally. But I really like him on the Psalms because, like you, Sherry, I'm not a poet. And to be able to see the progression of thought through a psalm, sometimes it jumps, sometimes it moves around. Um, and it's a little, it's not that big of a book. It's a little bitty thin, maybe a couple hundred page book. And each each one is is just a little snippet of the 150 Psalms. So it's not it's not detailed, but his point is not to give you a, a verse by verse exposition of every uh, image within the psalm. It is, um, it's intended to help you analyze the psalm because he's, it's, it's intended to help you preach the psalms in order to tell somebody, here, here's, the, here's the thought of this psalm. Um, and it's excellent. It's probably not in print anymore would be my guess, but I think it's just called Notes on the Psalms. Uh, that's my favorite book on the psalms because when I'm going there, I'm trying to, I'm trying to preach the psalms, uh, more or less. So that's, a, that's what I like. Uh, again, well, 
not 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 too much doctrinal issue not not too many doctrinal issues you're going to get in the book of psalms from him um uh but in some of the other areas you will and it's just, it's it's presbyterian theology is all it is um that would be where i'd go uh, i would you know the, the <coughs> i'm sure is it truth for it's truth for today right I think that's the name of that series uh it's the the slip covers are red gold print and uh, i think it's it's, it's kind of it's eddie clower the clower that does it i believe and he, he was the one behind it um michael height i know wrote when I think Denny Petrillo also uh, wrote, I think Denny Petrillo wrote uh, Ecclesiastes. Did Denny, did Denny write Psalms? I'd have to look that up. Um, but if you want to know how to get a hold of him, I'd, I'd contact Denny. He's been one of our speakers here. You should be able to find him. But ha not having read it, I just trust the, I, tr I trust the men behind that that series of, uh, of commentaries. And if I were going to recommend one to you, sight unseen, it would be that one. Because the stuff I have read from them, of course, it's it's all brethren that have written it, and it's brethren with enough scholarship, which is sometimes hard to find. Uh, finding enough brethren with with decent an amount of scholarship that are conservative and, and reliable enough that you'd want to read a commentary from them. Uh, this group has been uh, largely very well done in, in all of those things. So that that that'd be where I'd steer you. Uh, others others may be uh, uh, more versed on that. I, you know, some preachers just have book upon book upon book. I don't. I never have. Um, I am not a huge reader of extra biblical books, and that's not to say. Well, let me let me say this on, on, on along those lines. There's there's good in that, and there's bad in that. Uh, when I when I come across something my you know, that I'm studying my Bible, my default switch is to find another Bible passage to 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 do some kind of comparative study between text and so on. That's just the way my brain works. The good side of that is I end up, I think, there's me trying to evaluate myself and that's always dangerous, but I think I make connections within the text that other guys miss because their default switch is when they come across something they don't know, they go grab a book and try and do some outside research to find the answer to it. So they don't, I think, make as many interconnected, um, they're, they're thinking about the text is not as interconnected as I think mine is. Now, the downside of that for me is when we come to historical things, when we come to, um, uh, like in, in the book of Jude today, uh, there, there are a couple of quotations inside the book of Jude that uh, scholars think come from either uh, pseudop pseudopigraphal books, which would be uh, e extra canonical books written, out, written before um, uh, the time of Jesus. Um, um, I think they, I think one of them one of them I think they quote uh, the book of Enoch well that, that's not that that no not the book of Enoch uh, yeah or also the um, what's the other one they think is used in Jude uh, the ascension of Moses I think so some of those kind of things I don't I don't know the names I, I don't read them I don't know them because that's just not it's not part of me and so I don't have a vast library of of books ab about the Bible I had. My, my library was heavily weighted toward uh, research books, biblical dictionaries, um, um, lexicons, those kind of things that would help me that would help me analyze words within the text. I didn't have a lot of books in my library that that were like study helps for Psalms, and so I, I haven't read a lot of them. And so, you know, strengths and weaknesses, and it's tough. It's tough to do it all because it's just have, tough to have that many hours in the day and to know all that. So 
I may not be the best person to ask, Sherry. That's probably a more rambling response than you wanted, but you knew who you were asking the question to when you started. Um, <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> when Melissa asked uh, Jonathan, did you preach service before you went to Memphis? She might have been asking to the Jonathan in the chat room. <laughs> Entirely possible, man. I don't know. I don't know which one she was asking us. Um, let's see what we got here. Uh, Elaine. Jonathan, can you explain Luke 22, 25 through 36? Um, I can try. Let me turn it up here. Um, Luke 22, 35 through 36. All right. Let me add the screen share in here, which I have not done yet. We made it through 40 minutes. Not the screen share coming up. So here we go. Bang. There we are. Nope. There we are. All right. Um, he says, starting in, where, where'd you want me to start? 25 through 36. That, that's why this is not looking right. Um, 25 through 36. You say on your question, I realize it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, are you sure you don't mean 21, 35 through uh, 25 through 36, since we're talking about uh, the fall of Jerusalem? Um, um, yeah, Luke 21. That's what I thought. Okay, let's go to 21, because that, that would make more sense in terms of what it is. Uh, so i got 20 minutes left here. Um, says... There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the waves and the sea, people fainting with, fainting with fear and foreboding for what is coming into the world. For the powers of the heavens or the heavens will be shaken. All right. Um, does, does the ESV give any learn? If you don't, yeah, there you go. Right there. I hope you can see that on the screen. Um, there is a list uh, in the ESV. On the it, well, I'm assuming it's the same if you had a print Bible in the longest version of the ESV. That T, which is a, a note saying there's a cross reference here, and that's how the ESV handles it. Some Bibles have like center columns, some of them have on the bottom. Uh, at least in the, the digital version of the ESV, they have letters and they just hover it over, and you can get all your cross references. The reason I want to pull that up is you see all of those references, and, and, and that text may be too small for you to read on the screen, but look, go through there Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24. Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, second reference in Joel 2, Joel 3, uh, then Acts 2, which quotes Joel 2, and then parenthetically inside of that, Amos 5, Amos 9, Zephaniah 1, and then obviously Revelation 6 and 8. You see how many Old Testament references there are, Elaine? We read this language, and we see, okay, suns and moon, or signs rather in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth, and we read that, and what do we think? We read the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What do we think immediately? We immediately think end of the world, end of time. Uh, even powers of heavens, does the ESV do it here? Yeah, Isaiah 34, 4. Okay, is that the verse that I think it is? Let me just double check before I get there. Um, All the hosts of heaven shall, roll, shall rot away. The skies will be rolled up like a scroll. That's not the passage I was thinking it was, but that works for me as well. See, we read that language, the skies being rolled up like a scroll. If if you heard a preacher say that, sometimes we even, there's a song we use to sing that uses that language too, if I'm not mistaken. The host of heaven, 
So the, the, the stars, the host of heaven, they're going to rot away. The sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. And what, what would we think? Well, we would think the end of the world, wouldn't we? That's exactly what we would think, okay? Look, look, judgment on the nations. Draw near, O nations, to hear. The Lord is enraged against all the nations, furious against all their hosts, devoted them to destruction. And when that destruction comes, the mountains shall flow with their blood, the host of heaven shall rot away, the skies will roll up like a scroll. And then look what he says here. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. The skies rolling up like a scroll is a judgment first on Edom. And as you continue through the section, upon the other nations that follow after it. All right? Edom. Now, Edom as a nation was destroyed by Babylon, I believe, in the time that Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed uh, Jerusalem, he didn't just stop with Jerusalem. He destroyed all of that region. And I believe it's in about 586 or so that Edom uh, was ultimately essentially wiped off the map. Uh, as Obadiah had prophesied, some, well, depending, depending on where you date Obadiah, there's a couple of different thoughts about that. But that that would happened back during the time of, six, just call it 600 years before Jesus came. The date I might have the date off there slightly, but roughly 600 years before the time of Jesus, this... The heavens, uh, the heavens rotting away, and the sky, the skies being rolled up a scroll like a scroll. That was fulfilled 600 years before Jesus ever was born. And from our perspective, then, right, 2,600 years since before we were here. So that prophecy was fulfilled. The, the skies rolling up like a scroll was fulfilled 2,600 years ago. There's our problem. We come and we read this, and we think, oh, that must be the end of time. Because it's, it sounds just like Revelation. It sounds just like it. And we say, okay, that has to be it. Okay, and then the next phrase. The next phrase, we read the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Well, that not that Acts 1? Isn't Acts 1 where the, the, the angels tell us that why are you gazing up in heaven? Because the one who went away, he's going to come back again in the same manner. He's going to come in the clouds. So there we go. That's got to be talking about the second coming. Does this give me the reference I want? Okay, no, that's not the reference I want. But um, Daniel 7, verse 13 will work well enough. Okay, I saw in the night of the visions, and behold, there came uh, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. There's another reference, and I don't know this one off the top of my head. Um, that's the danger of doing this without prep. There is another reference to God riding in the clouds in the Old Testament. If somebody's out there and wants to find it for me in the next, you know, 10 minutes or so, that's great. It, it, it exists. I just, off the top of my head, I, it's slipping me. I, I want to say it's in Isaiah, but I could be dead, dead wrong on that. But again, that language, that imagery, once again, is contained in the Old Testament, right? So it's, it's we, when Jesus is standing, and this is why it's so important to leave something in a first century context. When Jesus is standing in the temple grounds, talking about the fall of Jerusalem, He's talking to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's talking to his disciples, first century Jewish men who were versed in the Old Testament scriptures. They would have heard Jesus say this, and their minds would have never on it, never once, their minds would have never gone down to sometime 2,000 years removed from where we stand, this is going to be fulfilled, right? 
Verse 28, he says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Once again, Jesus does not say when these things at some point in the future begin to take place, then those who are alive at that time straighten up and raise, and they should raise their heads for their redemption is drawing near. That's not what he says. He, he says it. This is an actual personal conversation. Is it Mark's account? I think Mark's account limits it, limits it just to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Matthew says the disciples. One of them says, I think it has just the four disciples listed there. It doesn't matter. Whoever, whether it's the four or the 12 or whoever's standing in that particular conversation, this is an actual historical conversation. And when he says to the people listening to them, when these things take place, raise up your heads. If you had been standing there, what would you have thought? You would have thought, this is going to impact me. I'm going to need to raise up my head at some point. This is going to impact me. That's what you would have thought. Now, there are other times, like in Daniel, when Daniel asked the, the, the messenger in Daniel 12, what is this? And Daniel, uh, the, the messenger says, Daniel, just roll it up. Seal up the scroll because it's not about you. Okay, Jesus doesn't do that. But then he says in verse 29, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see yourself, you know that summer is already near. So you can see the time of the season when it happens. So also when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. All right. Now, let me, let me, let me finish the thought and then I'll come back to that. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So again, we know then that all of these things are going to take place within this generation. So the generation of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all of these things, which would include the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, will occur within the time frame of this generation. It was going to occur in a time frame that they would be able to see, uh, and they would know that it was coming, because they know you know when a fruit tree is about to 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 when uh, to bear fruit, it 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 blossoms, and then ultimately the fruit fruit begins to appear, and then ultimately then that fruit ripens, and there we go. Um, so you know summer's near. So also when you see these things taking place, you're going to know when the end of these these events happens. All right. He then says, you need to continue to watch, verse 34, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So don't get distracted. Don't, don't get caught up in this world or don't get, you know, don't be, be in despair because of the, the tribulation and all of that that's coming upon you. That day will come upon you suddenly if you're not paying attention. Or it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth. Okay, this judgment is coming. That sounds very much like the book of Revelation. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, which you're going to. Okay, this is a judgment that he is bringing. I still don't think this is referring to the end of time. All right. Um, those who dwell on the, whole, on the whole face of the earth. Now, there are those who do try to uh, make that metaphorical um, and call, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll go through the book of Revelation and say that those who... Um, uh, dwell on the face of the earth. It's talking about Jews, and that the earth is the Jewish nation, and so on. I, I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, um, but, um, um, but the the um, excuse me, the First Peter chapter five says that the the tribulations that have hit the, hit, hit the church, uh, the fiery trial of First Peter four, uh, 
first Peter five says the, the same thing is the, the, the same, the same, um, ah, Jonathan, I've lost the phraseology. First Peter chapter five, the same afflictions. It's not afflictions. This is why you never change translations because once you do, you can never remember what the Bible says because it's different in all of the, uh, the problem that you suffering, same kinds of suffering, resist the devil, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So um, this would suggest that, you know, that that's actually true, that it, this, this affliction that they're going to be, you're going to be seen would not just impact a localized geographic area, but the brotherhood across the world does, is impacted by that. Okay. Um, so anyway, I think it's all judgment about, about Israel. There's a lot more I could say about that. Um, the, um, the, where's the verse that I want? I think it's later in, for, in Luke's account. I thought it was, um, is it 22? Where is it? 21, 22, 20. Start in verse 20, which is in the same context. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. So that's what you're going to see. You're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That's what we're talking about. Uh, I see a couple of people giving me verses there that might be referenced back to the verse I was trying to think of earlier. Isaiah 19.1, is that the one I was thinking of? Yep, that's the one I was thinking of. Uh, uh, who did that? Uh, Sherry, that's exactly the verse I was thinking of. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And again, here's the Lord riding on a cloud, and it's about a judgment of Egypt. So this is not universal. This is not end of time. This is a judgment about Egypt. Okay, and that's it. Um, let's see. Christine gives me Deuteronomy thirty three twenty six. That may be maybe more than thirty thirty three twenty six. Um, there's none like uh, uh, like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in His Majesty. Same kind of imagery. That one. That one's good. Uh, Travis puts up Jeremiah four and verse thirteen. That one I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Okay, again, same imagery. Now, I, I, the one, I, the one I had in my mind was this is the Isaiah nineteen one, but those others. So the point is, this imagery is just all over the Old Testament, and the reason we struggle with it so much is because we don't know that it's all over the Old Testament. So once you get that, once you get that worked through, it, these things I think become a lot easier. Uh, to begin to understand and, and not immediately jump down. Oh, this has got to be talking about the end of time and so on. I've got a couple minutes here. Let's see if there's anything else I can get in. Um, uh, Jonathan asked, did you ever get to meet Brother Hearn? I did not. I think he had, I think he had passed by the time I got to Memphis. Um, <laughs> Scott, going back to my talks, youth today don't know our tech struggles. No, no, they don't. <laughs> um, uh Tom Waycaster has a seven-volume commentary that is well done. He taught at MSLP. I know Tom. Um, seven-volume. I don't. What books he's, he's concerned about there uh, in that in that set, Jonathan? I don't know the set. Um, Gene says you mentioned one time about Psalms written from the uh, point of a shepherd. A shepherd looks at the Psalms. I think that's actually the title of the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Scott Scott replied to that. Um, uh, shepherd looks at the Psalms by um, uh, W. Philip Keller. Good book. And now it's just one psalm. Well, I think it actually, it's just one psalm primarily. It's an, it's an, it is an analysis of Psalm 23. But yeah, that's a really good book to read. It's again, short, easy read. Uh, if you've never read it, that one I'm pretty sure is still in print. Um, and you should be able to find it pretty much any Amazon or wherever else you want to go. 
Uh, but that that's a, that's a really if you've never read it, that's a really neat ride, a read rather. Uh, if you've ever heard a preacher in the last twenty years or so, I don't I don't remember when that book was written. Uh, I read it twenty years ago, so it's probably older than that. But um, if if you've ever heard a preacher talk about the Psalms and break it down, talking about all the things dealing with sheep, there's a really good chance his source material was that book. It's 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 a must read in terms of um, um, uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, so yeah, good, really good book. Uh, what else do I have here? Uh, some people commenting on the other things that I was going through. Um, let's see. I think that's uh that's most everything. Let's see if there's anything else I can go back and pick up. Um, um Christine says my eldest son was an IT security compliance specialist, lost to the world, rather wished him to be a preacher. That's as I was talking about earlier. You set those children loose in the world. And it is they don't they don't they don't do what you want them to do. I mean God made two sons. God made a son and a daughter, if you will. Uh, Luke calls Adam a son of God. And how long did it take for him to lose both of them? I mean, it's it's people with free moral agency do free moral agency things. They they go off <clears throat> and and do things you don't uh, um, um, have have a um, uh, intention for you to to uh, do. Um, let's see what we got here. Um, Johnny asked, do you believe it's a good idea to attend formal training before coming a full-time preacher? Um, in general, yes, Johnny. In general, yes. Um, I do. It, it's there, there are some there are some men who are self-made men in terms of um, their studies. Um, I guess no one's truly a self-made man in that regard because you're usually studying and reading after somebody. But you understand what I mean, that, that do it without the formal instruction. Uh, that that can happen, uh, and, and frankly, I wish it could happen more. I wish our our churches did a lot better job of um, um, teaching the Bible in such a way as to prepare men to preach. The problem is we don't, and some of it's just time. I mean, there's there there's there's having the resources in a single local church to get that done. I get it; it's tough. Um, but I will say this is that. I've rarely been at a church that if the primary source of instruction that a person had to um, uh, throughout their, you know, from youth up into their age where you might start preaching, if, if the primary source of instruction they had is the educational program available to them at, at, at their local church, would that prepare them to be able to preach the gospel? No, not really. Now you can say, well, it's not the church's job. Well, on some level, it is the church's job. Paul tells Timothy, the things that you've heard, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, the things that you've heard, learned, seen from me, the same commit thou to faithful men. Whose job was it to commit the things of the gospel to the next generation of preachers who would be able then to teach others also? I mean, there's... there's is that, is that four generations? There's Paul, there's Timothy, there's the men that Timothy teaches, and then there's the men that um, um, uh, the men that are taught by the men that Timothy. That's four generations of people, and it's all preachers training other preachers. It's all it's it's localized like that, and 
it's it's one thing to say, hey, you, you need to be doing your own study and so on, but um, it's it is tough. It's tough to get to the level that you need to get to in terms of of, of, of Bible study to be able to faithfully and capably preach the gospel if you don't have somebody to guide you. It, it's doable, but man, is it tough. Uh, and I don't know that our local churches do a good enough job. The schools of preaching help a lot. Um, I'm not anti-university. I graduated from one myself, and I'm still very, very fond of Fried Hardeman University. But if I were just, if I'm just trying to train a preacher, I'd much rather have guy go to school of preaching. But the reality is that not everybody is either going to be able or willing to take two years out of their lives, you know, root up their stuff and go off to a to a school of preaching to learn how to preach. That's that's not easy. And we've had you know Memphis and Bear Valley on here uh, lately, and and had had some of that same thought is that once guys are established, it's it's tough to get and it's tough to get guys to come. So you got to catch them young. Okay understand that. But I think if our churches did a better job intentionally training guys to preach or intentionally training guys to have enough biblical knowledge to be effective elders, we could do, we could do a lot more. There, there are, there are men in your church right now, uh, unless you're just maybe in a really, really small church. There are men in your church right now that would do more and teach more and preach more if they weren't so just scared of it. And, and overwhelmed by it, if they actually believe the possibility existed to, to to do it in an effective manner, and we as we as the church collectively need to be, do a better job of identifying those guys and letting them, you know, I, I believe in the concept of letting people self-identify. Usually, those those guys you'll find in the church. You don't have to go looking for them. If you're teaching the Bible well, they come find you. Okay, um, we would do a, we would do a lot of good if we took it upon ourselves, maybe it just as preachers and, and maybe elders or whoever in the church has got the capability of doing it, of doing a better job of mentoring those guys and being intentional in terms of developing them. But to answer your question, I, I, yes, it's, is it absolutely essential? No. Trial by fire works. You just, you stand up in the pulpit day, week after week after week, you'll have to figure out something eventually. But you can save yourself a lot of heartache um, in, 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 in getting some formal training. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the way qualifications for uh, preachers are written these days. Um, you know, my dad doesn't actually have a degree in Bible. My dad's one of the best Bible students I've ever met. His degree is actually in speech. Um, it's, it's not in Bible. Um, and sometimes today we write qualifications for guys looking for preaching in ways that exclude people that could very well do a, that are, that might might be very very helpful, um, and so uh, I don't I don't like the idea that in order to stand in a, in a pulpit of Churches of Christ you have to have a Bible degree from one of our universities or school of preaching. I, that's not the way I'd like to see job descriptions written. Um, you know, some of the best some of the best teachers you have in high school might have a degree that has nothing to do with teaching. They just had re real world re real world experience and then became teachers, or that kind of thing. There's a lot of guys that. Go go a non traditional path that end up being um, 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 very good preachers. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there because Jonathan's making jokes in the comment section. Uh, don't start making bad Bible jokes, Jonathan. That that could that could derail the whole show for the rest of the time. <laughs> Did you know that David was the smallest man? He played in Saul's ear. Don't stop, stop. We're not going down the path. 
of bad Bible jokes. I know a bunch of them, and we're not going down that path, especially <laughs> um, especially since we're right at the top of the hour. Uh, a little bit different show today. We kind of went all over the field, and I appreciate it. Um, and absolutely. Um, but I appreciate it. I, I like that we can we can have these kind of days, and we actually did get a few maybe somewhat substantive Bible questions answered. Um, and we will wrap up the first hour here and turn our attention when we get back to our first non-Romans study during the second hour. So sit tight, and we will begin our look at the book of Jude here in just a couple of moments. Well, welcome back, everybody, um, and good to have you here. Second hour from the deep end. We are going to turn our attention to the book of Jude, our first time on from the deep end, not studying Romans. That feels weird. Uh, that study only took us from September first Monday, I think first Monday in September until yesterday, but uh, we're finished. And so we're going to move on to the book of Jude today. I'm going to try to spend a couple days on Jude. Um, I think I can do a decent job on it in the two days that we have left in this week. Uh, it's one reason I went ahead with this among your, all the suggestions that you made because I could, because of the holiday coming up on Monday, um, I figured this would be, if we can get it done in two days, then we're not 
breaking a thought and then having to come back, you know, five or six days later and pick up a thought again. Uh, so if I can make, if I can make myself get it done in two days, which I think I can, we'll uh, wrap up a thought. Uh, for those that may not have been here, um, well, first of all, uh, don't forget we have coming up. It is Tuesday, and so coming up uh, right after this program, uh, Truth Tuesday will be on. And I know they're going to be on today. They've already got all their stuff set up and it's ready to go. So they will be on at the 10 o'clock hour. So I do need to finish on time today. Um, but, um, and then tonight we have Mornay Stefanis on for Connect. So let me throw, go ahead and throw that in. Oh, and forget, don't forget Paul Mays this afternoon as well. But I always forget what time Paul is on. It's either one or two. I can never remember what she becomes on at one or two. But uh, don't forget Paul will be there. Um, we also then have um, in the... Um, um, oh, for the coming of the week, Thursday, if you weren't here in the first hour, I will not be here Thursday. Uh, Julie has got the, her treatment up at the uh, Mayo Clinic, and so we'll be up there uh, during the day on Thursday. I uh, should be back in time for the Connect meeting tomorrow or Thursday then. And then Monday's Memorial Day, and so I figured so let's just go ahead and take that day off as well. So we'll be off for almost uh, six days, I guess that is, and then we'll be back here and pick up another new topic on on Tuesday. So without any more delay, let's turn our attention into the um, – book of Jude. Um, <clears throat> let's just do some introductory stuff on it. Um, let's see if I have something. I had something pulled up earlier on Jude. Um, let's just start with start here. Um, okay, sorry. Get, or, get organized here. I kept changing my mind about what I wanted to do. Um, the introduction of the ES, on the ESV uh, tells you a little bit about the book. Um, the common, the, 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 there at the close of it, the common um, thought is that um, Jude obviously refers to himself in the very first verse. Um, she's, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. <clears throat> Most people believe um, that the brother of James, the J, rather the James that is here, is probably the James that is the Lord's brother. Uh, I don't see any reason to swerve away from that. There are a couple of other Jameses, Jameses that are put forth as potential um, options there. Um, uh, I, I don't, you know, James the Apostle, I believe, is one. Um, there's another James whose name is uh, the, the uh, Barsabbas, the one, the one that was rejected in, in, in Acts chapter 1 from when Matthias is chosen from being the Apostle. Um they actually believe he might actually be the James that's referenced here. That seems that seems fairly unlikely to me. Um, the argument against this being the, James, the brother of Jesus, is that Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, as opposed to James, the um, um, you know if 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 Jude is a brother of James, why would he not also then be at least a half brother of Jesus? That would be the thought. And I think that the easiest answer for that is simply that he's referred to as a, um, 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 he, he's exalting the Christ by saying, I'm a brother of James, I'm just a servant of Jesus. And that seems to be a pretty easy, pretty easy way of looking at it. So the common view is that Jude is the brother of James, and that James is the brother of the Lord. So these are the two half-brothers of Jesus, uh, and so on. Um, another part of the reason that I think there might be some uh, reticence to uh, to do that probably gets back into Catholicism and their perpetual virginity of Mary. They get they get funny sometimes when it comes to um, um, the 
family of Jesus and Mary having other children and so on after that. So that, that might be part of it. But the standard view here is that um, uh, this is, the, that is just as is stated there in the preface that the ESV includes in its, in its write-up. Uh, and I see no particular reason to, uh, to turn away from it. So I will say that's probably your, your author. Now, uh, who is your audience? Always when you, you know, first rules of, of, of Bible study, for one of the first rules of hermeneutics you need to learn is you got to ask the question, who's talking and to whom are they talking? So who's your writer? Who's your audience? Well, your writer is probably a half-brother of Jesus, uh, and he's identifying himself as being the brother of James. Well, what do we know about James as a, as a leader in the church at Jerusalem? Well, we know that both of them, uh, Jude, and if this, if we're right about their identity, we know that both of them is at John chapter seven, I believe it is, uh, that state that neither his brothers believed in him, um, and so his family, other than Mary, and we don't know about Joseph because he disappears from the scene, presumably dead at some point. Um, but um, other than Mary, his his brothers did not believe him, which is understandable. You grew up with him, and he's claiming to be the son of God. Yeah, that, that's going to be a tough sell. Um, but they didn't. But apparently, after his re- resurrection, they both began to believe. And James especially becomes prominent in the church at Jerusalem. Uh, the one thing we know is that James is very heavily defensive of the Jewish traditions. Um, he's one who speaks at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Um and as he does so, he is the one who first posits the restrictions that should be placed upon the Gentiles uh, as, as they obey the gospel and begin to dwell in Jewish communities. It is also James who in Acts chapter, well, end of 20, end of 21, when Paul returns to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem, it is James that is the one who greets him and effectively compels him to take the vow of purification uh, in the temple with the uh, the men who had already begun that on that process. Um, it's interesting is in Galatians chapter two, that when Peter is overcome in the fault where he begins to, or he ceases rather, to eat with the Gentiles. Paul in writing that passage says, there are those, or there were those who came up from, or came down from James, not from Jerusalem, but from James, who when they returned. Um, um, when they return to Antioch, rather, it's Peter that they obviously influenced Peter to stop eating with the Gentiles. That's James. Now, I'm not, I don't, I don't in any way in, intend to uh, impugn James. Of course not. Don't in any way try to uh, say that he is sinful in those matters. No, but I am saying James is very protective of Judaism. Uh, that that is clear as you study his 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 examples throughout the his references to him in the New Testament. Even the book that that he had that we believe that he penned. Um, you look at the uh, the the most Jewish book in terms of uh, its structure and its style, the most Hebrew in its writing. Uh, James is sometimes been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It, it is written like the book of Proverbs. And it's one of the very few books uh, written in the New Testament that essentially makes no reference to the Gentiles being in the church. So one of two possibilities exist. That James writes the book of James um, before the Gentiles are included or that James, when he wrote his book, just didn't see fit to talk about the Gentiles. I'm open to either possibility. Uh, Now, the opening of the book of James says it is written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad greeting. So it's written to the scattered church. 
but he calls it the 12 tribes, which means it's, it's two Jewish members of that church. Now, it says the church was scattered abroad. Well, that takes place starting in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, 1, with the persecution of Saul, that, the, that Saul brings upon the church. For 8, 4 says, now they therefore that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Okay, so that's Acts 8. Now, the gap between Acts 8 and Acts 10, when Peter goes and converts the first Gentile of Cornelius, um, you know, chronologies will differ, but it's not a big window. It's no more than a few years, maybe a couple of years at, at most, between Acts 8 and Acts 10, which puts the writing of the book of James in a very narrow window if it's pre-inclusion of the Gentiles. Um, my point being, James is very concerned about Jew Judaism. Now, what does that have to say about Jude? Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing at all. He's his brother. Brother sometimes disagrees. Brother sometimes have different interests. Um, that's, all, that's absolutely true. It's also true that oftentimes families have a, a, a commonality about them. Uh, and James and Jude stood together in rejecting Jesus and apparently came together uh, in receiving him. So there, there's no evidence to suggest that Jude is somehow of a different mind than his brother James. I say that to say this. Have you read the book of Jude? What's it about? Well, what the book of Jude, as you read through it, and if you're here on the video stream, you can see it. Um, go through starting about verse number, well, you can actually start in verses three and three and four, but especially once you start getting into verse five and you read the examples uh, about them coming out of Egypt. Obviously, you got the thing with the, with the angels there. You've got Sodom and Gomorrah uh, there in verse number seven. And all through here, uh, the body of the death of Moses, verses eight and nine. And we can just go on and on down on through there. C Cain and Balaam uh, and Korah and, and so on. All, all the references through this book are Old Testament references, right? They're, they deal with Old Testament scriptures. What does that tell me then about his audience? Well, one of two things is one of two things is possible here again. At least one of two things. One, he's trying to inform uh, Gentiles about the uh, Old Testament, which is possible, or more likely, I think is 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 the case that he is a Jewish man, probably walking in step with his brother, at least sharing some of those sensitivities and of his desire for the salvation of the Jews. And he writes a book warning Jewish Christians about things that are coming, about false teachers that are going to be coming into their midst. And he warns them based upon their understanding of Old Testament scriptures. So my, my guess would be that the audience of the book of Jude is largely Jewish, right? So that's who's talking, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, writing to a largely Jewish audience. What is the point? What's what is the the uh, the purpose of the writing? Fortunately, he tells us exactly what the purpose is. There in verse number three, Jude says, "I was eager to write to you about our common salvation." So he wanted to write a book extolling the, the blessings of the common salvation that that uh, he and his audience shared. So presumably, that was going to be. A hopeful book that was going to be a book of encouragement and uplifting and he says i would rather talk to you about those things um about i know again we don't know what that book would have contained because we don't have that book but presumably it presumably it would have been as i said 
a much more uplifting book. But he says, I found it needful, necessary, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I found it needful to write this one, necessary. I wanted to write one about the common salvation, but now I have realized that I need to write to you that you need to contend for the faith. Why? Well, verse 4 will tell you. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers had come in to the church. Right? And that is why he felt it necessary to write this book. Um, and so Jude, half-brother of Jesus, brother of James, writing to presumably Jews, who are Christians now, telling them that they need to stand up for the gospel, to stand up for the faith that was once delivered because people are coming in and beginning to pervert the gospel. They're beginning to teach something contrary to the gospel that they had received. All right, so that's who and to whom and why. All right, let's answer the question of when. What's the date of the book? Um, ESV says he likely wrote sometime between 65 and 80. Now, if you pick up some commentaries and read, that's generally the date range that, that you will be given uh, between 65 and 80. Sometimes you'll see it pushed down as far as 90. Um, and then, of course, if you get to a very liberal commentary, the more liberal commentaries basically try to move all of the New Testament books down into the second or third century. And that gets hard problematic because we start finding fragments of manuscripts and not, not that much longer after full manuscripts of these books, which would predate uh, the presumed time of uh, asserted time, rather, that some of the more liberal scholars give to the books. So from from scholarship that actually believes in the Bible, um, you're going to get a date somewhere between 65 and 80. All right, is there anything that will help us narrow that down some? Well, I think there are two things that um, will do so. Um, we're not going to do this a lot during the study, but we can't. I can't help. I, I have to point out to you, if you don't know it already, that there is a very strong correlation between the book of Jude and 2 Peter. Uh, in 2 Peter 2, you have the cities of Gomorrah. Um, you have these false teachers who have come in. Um, they walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. They despise authority. They're presumptuous. They're still they're self-willed. They speak evil of, uh, of um, dignitaries, whereas angels who are great in, in power and might do not bring a railing accusation against them before the Lord. Um, just like you have in Jude, these false teachers that have come in, uh, the, one of the examples he gives is about disputing over the um, um, uh, the body of Moses and how even Michael, the archangel, would not and did not bring that uh, railing accusation against even Satan himself. Um, these people are, he says about them, just as Peter did down here later in the book, uh, he says about these people that they, uh, they cause divisions, they're worldly people, they're devoid of the spirit, and so on. Very much like you'll find over here in 2 Peter, uh, their natural brute beast. Uh, even some of the uh, metaphors used are very similar. Uh, we got the well, we got the, the way of ba Balaam, son of, uh, of Beor, mentioned in the book of Jude as well. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is uh, reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
uh, over here in the book of Jude. Um, you have the same thing, whether they're grumblers, malcontents, following their own uh, sinful desires, loudmouth boasters. Um, but where is it? I just I just uh, skipped over it. Where is it? Um, where is it? There, there it is, verse 12. Uh, they're hidden wreaths in your love feast. Um, without they, they feast with you without fear. Uh, shepherds feeding them. Waterless clouds, just just as kind of very, very similar to Second Peter. So, so the the connection is clear. There's there's a very good correlation between the content of the book of, of Jude or Jude with the book of Second Peter. Now, the question then, of course, is which one was written first? Which one was written first? Well, generally, you skip down later into the book of Jude, um, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All right? So they're in the, 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 the predictions of the apostles. Um, oh, uh, by the way, one of the other Judes that people would consider would be Jude, who was actually Jude the apostle. Um, uh, one of the reasons that that is usually not, not, not accepted is because this seems to indicate that the Jude writing this book is not an apostle. It's either a very humble statement where he does not identify himself as an apostle, which is probably not likely. He's trying to establish the authority of his book, the authenticity of the book. He would, he would at some point assert his apostolic authority. So this individual is probably not an apostle, thereby the half-brother of James, not, and that, that, that would make James, the James of this book, not the James the apostle, but James the brother of Jesus. So I didn't mention that in the intro, I should have. But that, that the Jude, the apostle, is generally rejected as the author because of that statement, and I tend to agree with it. Um, but he does reference a prediction of the apostles in which during the last time there will be scoffers. All right, Paul says some of that in First and Second Timothy. You'll get that language, and that, that might be in the mind of Jude as well. But uh, go back over here to um, uh, Second Second Peter, where is there a a prediction of of that coming of these ungodly men coming in made by the apostles? Absolutely, as there were false prophets among the people, there will also be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And that's essentially what Jude says back up here at the beginning of the book, back up in verse number three. And so certain people, for verse four, actually, certain people have crept in unnoticed. That's exactly what Peter says. So the general conception is that Peter writes first, uh, apostol apostolic authority for those things establishes the truthfulness of the content. And then Jude, probably having been exposed to that book, probably knowing about, of the letter, Jude writes um, the um, the letter uh, back uh, in response, or you know, a, a complimentary letter, a complimentary letter to the book of Second Peter. Maybe a couple of years later, that's possible. Uh, as a reminder of the things that Peter had written. Now, that actually gets us back to a question I think Travis asked. Was it yesterday? Um, in the first hour of the program about what is the Babylon of of First Peter chapter five, when Peter first Peter when Peter writes First Peter he is in Babylon. Um, Peter is writing to a Jewish audience as well. In fact, if you uh, go back to First uh, Peter chapter one, First um, Peter chapter one refers to the elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Okay, that's Jewish. That's the same. That's effectively the same audience as James in James chapter one to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. There's the dispersion. In fact, does the ESV, I keep, I'm quoting James 1 out of the King James because I memorized the entire book of James as a part of being at Memphis. That's, that's your memory work for the, when, you, when you're at the Memphis School of Preaching, your memory work for the book of James is the book of James. So you memorize the whole thing. So in my brain, I still quote um, James out of, the, uh, out of the old King James. Um, yeah, ESV says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, which is the same thing that you have here. So Peter's writing to Jewish Christians, right? Uh, if you'll bear with me while I scroll down to Second Peter, um, Peter says to to the same to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing essentially he's writing to the uh, to the same audience uh, uh, once again um, as you as you get through um, uh, get through Second Peter. So you're dealing with a Jewish audience, and First Peter five he identifies where he is as he writes, um, and so on. So there's there's a connection there. I make this point to say this: um, if Peter is writing from actually from Babylon back to that wasn't you, Travis. I'm sorry. Somebody asked about Babylon the other day. I don't remember who it was, but um, somebody did. Anyway, sorry, I'm sorry, I misidentified there, Travis. What happens when I look down? I break my train of thought, and I don't know what I was saying. I, I have a hard time doing that. I don't know how guys do it when they're trying to take comments and keep talking at the same time. If I if I'm ever talking and I look down at the comment section, whatever I'm talking about just leaves my brain entirely. That that is not good when you're trying to do this kind of thing. Um, but anyway, if if he is in Babylon, and he is actually in Babylon, as opposed to using Babylon metaphorically to refer to either Jerusalem or Rome, um. And he's writing to a Jewish audience. Babylon's over to the east. And that book may very well have carried over from Babylon over into Jerusalem and, and so on. Now, where is Jude when he writes the book? I don't know. I, I don't know that anybody knows. I've never heard anything convincing about where Jude is located. But I do know that his brother James is a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. And his family, Jude's family, would have all been in Jerusalem at this time. I suspect Jude might very well have been in Jerusalem. Meaning that the writings of Peter, First and Second Peter, very easily could have gotten into Jude's hands pretty quickly. So it's not inconceivable at all if Jude is still in Jerusalem area and Peter is writing a book from Babylon, even though it's directed toward those who were in the, of the dispersion in Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia and so on. Uh, it's very possible as you transfer that letter from maybe actually eastern the eastern world, maybe there's a stop in Jerusalem, and that letter, you know, or or as it passes over the, the the top of the Fertile Crescent there, maybe up through Antioch or somewhere in that region, that somebody stops and makes a copy of the letter and it gets into Jude's hands pretty quickly. That that to me seems very very plausible that that might have happened, uh, depending on where you place Peter at the writing of Second Peter. So speculation there, just trying to piece this together in terms of the date and the time. Peter probably writes first. Either by inspiration, Jude writes the same things, because Jude could obviously, from the Holy Spirit, have an independent source. That's entirely possible. Or, what I think is probably more likely, that somehow the letter of 2 Peter makes it into the hands of Jude, maybe some time passes, and Jude writes a complementary letter to maybe individuals that he has direct connection with. Okay? So that, that's that's my construct. Now, was Jude in Jerusalem? Possibly. Has he moved up to some of those other churches that maybe Paul had established churches in? 
depends on how depends on his relationship. I, like I said, I don't see James leaving. James is still there in Acts twenty twenty one, pillar of the church and heavily heavily uh, uh, um, concerned with the, the uh, prosperity of the Jewish Christians. Uh, if you put Jude in that book, I don't know. So anyway, a lot of speculation to say I don't know. Um, let, let me get down then to the actual trying to firm up the timing. Most people will usually put Jude, I say most, a, a good number of people will put Jude down past the fall of Jerusalem. The thought being that Peter wrote um, um, Second Peter, probably 67, 68. That's a lot. That's kind of the time frame you'll see for Second Peter. If some time has passed, Jude might then follow that up early 70s as a reminder of the things that are going to come and so on. Possible. But if this is to a Jewish audience, and let's say it's written in AD 75, AD 80, doesn't matter. It's a, a man who had lived in Jerusalem, who was heavily invested in the Jerusalem church, and obviously writing to Jews very prominently using the Old Testament scriptures. And Old Testament scriptures prophesying of coming judgment. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of a coming judgment. How does he not mention the complete destruction of the Jewish nation when he's writing to Jews five years later, ten years later? There's no way. There's no way. I mean, it would be like one of us back in 2005 writing about some judgment coming on the United States without referencing 9-11. Which is, that just wouldn't happen. It's such, it was such a watershed moment. It, it would have to be in the book. So there's no way in my mind I can push this thing down past AD 70. Uh, it may have been just right before AD 70, because if you put Peter, 2 Peter 67, 68, there's not a lot of time for Jude to write Jude. So it's it's probably late 60s, but I, I've got to put it uh, prior to um, uh, prior to the fall of Jerusalem simply because it's not mentioned. The fall is not mentioned. Okay. One more introductory thing. Who are these false teachers? Who are the false teachers? Um, actually, two more introductory things. Well, I, I, may, I may save the second one for tomorrow. I want to try to see. We'll see how long it takes me to do the false teacher thing. Um, let me bring up um, one of these commentaries. Um, let's see if this is the one I want. Um, um, let's get back into. Um, yeah, let me blow this text up. So this is the the Bible knowledge commentary, just part of the Logos package that I have. Um, the man, man who wrote it is uh, Wolford. Um, a fairly standard um, denominational commentary. Uh, nothing to um, uh, and no, nothing to just it's just it's a pr pretty pretty solid standard commentary. I mean, it's, it's got I got doctrinal issues with them, but the the approach the guy takes is is pretty pretty uh, pretty standard. Um, here's the here, the the view that he puts forth is is probably the prevailing view about the the specific problem going on in the church that Jude is addressing. Um, uh, Jude stated <clears throat> that they have slipped in among you 
and the antinomian Gnostic heresy to which Jude may have been responding was beginning to make its influence in the first century. So he refers to this antinomian Gnostic heresy. Okay, that word I'm struggling to pronounce, antinomian. The prefix anti is just means you know against or no. Um, and then the Greek word for law is namos. So the nomian part of antinomian is just a, the root of that is the Greek word law. So what you have is anti or against law. So lawless. Okay. Um, and the the well, let me just keep reading. You'll see. You'll see how the, how he develops it. Um, let's see where we go. Um, starting here, contend for the faith. He says, starting the second sentence there, the heresy of Gnosticism had raised its head. Here, and this is a quotation from an author named Michael Green, here in an undeveloped form are the main characteristics which would later make up Gnosticism. Emphasis on knowledge, which which was uh, emancipated from the claims of morality. Arrogance toward unlightened church leaders. Interest in angiology, divisiveness, and lasciviousness. Okay. Gnosticism is generally considered to be the... Um, the thing that Jude is trying to defeat, to write against. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, okay? Uh, Just meaning then to know. And one of the characteristics of um, Gnosticism was, as just stated here, an emphasis on knowledge, which was emancipated from the claims of morality. So man is made of spirit and of flesh. Um, we we um, um, uh, cultivate knowledge and, and often a, a higher secret special knowledge, which is this idea of arrogance toward the unenlightened, the non-Gnostic church leaders. <coughs> and that takes primacy over claims of morality. So knowledge is not intended necessarily to take care of moral issues. Um, there, there is a division there between the, the, the flesh and the spirit, right? Um, and so he, he has this idea that this is the doctrine that Jude is primarily trying to, uh, re, re, uh, uh, to answer. Keep reading. The incipient Gnostics against whom Jude warned were denying the lordship of Jesus, exercising sinful license, and you can see on the screen there hopefully the, the verses that he's going, or that he's using, referring to within the book of Jude, a rebelling against authority, giving in to their own desires, being concerned only with gain for themselves, being divisive, fault-finding, and boasting. Gnosticism declared that the spirit was good and the material was evil. That's a lot simpler way of saying what I was stumbling through a minute ago. Spirit's good, flesh is evil. Therefore, spiritual the spiritual was to be cultivated and fed with freedom to purpose its good inclinations. In addition, Gnostics felt free to give vent to the desires of the flesh. Thus this heart, thus the heart of this apostasy was that it turned the grace of God into a license and lasciviousness. Okay? Maybe just he, he, I'm trying to and, and, um, talk about what he's, what he's describing there. Okay? You have um, a view of flesh good, I mean spirit good, flesh bad. Okay? We're going to cultivate the spirit. We need to cultivate and and feed that spirit and allow, as he says here, the freedom to pursue its good inclinations. Spirit's good. So we're going to allow the spirit to do what it wants. 
and cultivate the spirit. But in contrary to what we were talking about throughout the book of Romans, you cultivate the spirit to control the flesh. Because the flesh is evil, spirit good, we're going to cultivate the one and make it good. We don't care then about the quality of the flesh. The flesh just does what it does, and it doesn't impact me spiritually. Right? So the sins of my flesh don't necessarily impact my spirit. That's a real convenient doctrine, isn't it? Because then I can go do whatever I want to with my flesh and just say, well, that's just my flesh doing it. That's not my spirit doing it. All right? And so that's what he's saying is that's the, the argument that he's putting forth is that if you go follow down a Gnostic heresy, you turn the grace of God into a license to sin and to lasciviousness. All right? Jude wrote to warn of this dual apostasy uh, of, of wrong conduct and uh, false uh, false doctrine. Okay, um, and that that's that's good enough there. Now, let me tell you where I am on the matter. First of all, um, Travis adding adding into it, the antinomians uh, believe that flesh was sinful. That's what we're just talking about. The spirit's holy. Nothing you can do in the flesh would spoil the spirit, thus license to to sinful behavior. Okay. Okay, that's, again, I just let other people talk. That's more succinct than what I just said. <laughs> so there you go. Um, what we have, though, down here at the, 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 well, the verse that causes me to take the position I do on the book starts in verse 17. First of all, I'm, I'm dating, as we just talked about, I am dating this thing pre-70. And I, you notice what he says up here, uh, that quotation from Michael Green earlier, I think it was? Here in an undeveloped form are all the main characteristics which would make up later Gnosticism, all right? It's tough to get a fully documented and established antinomian Gnostic view into the church mid-first century. It's tough to find it. The Gnostic doctrine as it was formulated is a late first century at the earliest over into the, even into the mid-second century where it really begins to take hold of the church. So when guys want to find um, Gnostic doctrine being addressed in the biblical text, you have to phrase it that way. That's how you have to conceive of it. God was getting ahead of the false doctrines that would be coming. So the later epistles, like Jude, uh, First and Second Timothy, uh, first, second, and third John, particularly first John, those epistles that we think to be written later. God has turned his attention from Judaizers and the Pharisees that we talked about all through the book of Romans. He has turned his attention away from those things. And in first John and other books is looking forward to the next generation of false doctrine that's going to come, which would be Gnostic theology. So, um, and I was taught at Memphis, okay, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, the man of sin. Um, I'm not going to tell you which professor because I just completely disagree with his take on the matter. But his view of 2 Thessalonians, which is one of the earliest epistles of Paul, probably the, probably, probably the earliest two epistles of Paul are First and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians, I was told, was the seeds of Gnosticism. Okay, the seeds of Gnosticism. 
So Paul could write about the seeds of Gnosticism in AD 50. That always troubled me because that was also the argument to put 1 John down around 90 is because John is writing about Gnostics. But I'm like, well, if Paul's writing about Gnostics in 50, why can't somebody else do it in 55, 59, 62, 64, 69? if, If Paul can write about it in 52, John can write about it at any point after that. So I, I disagreed with the take. I do. But that's the way it's talked about, this undeveloped, unformed Gnostic theology. So it has to be looking somewhat prophetically. The argument would go in the book of Jude that that's exactly what he's doing. Because he says um, that, um, um, well, certain people have crept in unnoticed. But where, where's the phrase I'm looking for? That may be down in verse 17. Um, yeah, in the last time, there will be scoffers. In other words, looking forward, not, not currently, not, not backwards, okay? So that, that would be the observation, that this is looking forward down the stream of time. Same, same kind of language as Paul's writing to Timothy, is that these, this, this falling away is going to occur. In the last days, these scoffers will come. So it's looking forward, not currently or backwards, okay? That, that's, the, that's the construct. To me, though, verse 17 says exactly the opposite. To me, look in verse 17. We must remember the predictions of our apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last time, there will be scoffers. Well, well, um, let's, let's identify something. If we're going to identify who these scoffers are, wouldn't it help to know when they're going to come? I mean, that seems to me to be a very reasonable question to ask. When will the scoffers appear on the scene? Because if I know when, I'm going to have a pretty good clue of who. Well, I know when. In the last time. Okay? So, Gnosticism rises its ugly head in a fully formed fashion, late first at best, but generally second century. Um, what is the second century the last time of? What, what is the second century the last time of? I have no idea. It doesn't even really fit being the last time, maybe if you say Rome or the book of Revelation is about the fall of Rome, because you're still almost 300, maybe 350 years. If you start with the start of the second century, so AD 100, um, that's still 376 years until the fall of Rome. So even if it's Rome in the book of Revelation is your last time, aren't you some... Um, 300 years too early? Not a very good description of the last time. We say the last time just means the Christian age. So it's all of Christendom. Okay. Um, If these are Gnostics, now I know people say the spirit of Gnosticism is still alive. I get that, and I do. And I don't disagree with that, by the way. I do not disagree with the spirit the spirit of Gnosticism. Is not Gnosticism being gone, and I'll try to explain that here in a moment. But um, um, the actual doctrine of Gnosticism as a thing, the church answered it and put it away 
16, 17, 1800 years ago. It doesn't make sense. You see, how, see, see what that does? It, it now has no connection to the lives of the people reading the book of Jude. And it has no relevance to us today because these issues have already been settled. What is the last time? Well, here's an idea. Why don't we actually look in our Bible and find out when the phrase, oh, I don't know, last time occurs? That'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Because if we could figure out when the last time is mentioned in the Bible, maybe we might have some idea about what the last time is. Just a second here to pull up my thing. Okay. Um, the phrase is used two other places. It's used in 1 Peter 1 5. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, starting. Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and fading out away, kept in heaven uh, for you who by God's hand are being guarded through faith for salvation. Okay. For, a for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, there it is. What's it mean? Well, it doesn't really tell me a whole lot there, but just keep reading. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You rejoice in the knowledge that a salvation is coming in the last time, but now you have to suffer for a little while. Last time, little while. Later in the same book. Later in the same book, we're going to come back to that phrase, and after you have suffered a little while. Why are they suffering for a little while? Because the fiery trial that has come upon them. Because the time has come that judgment should begin at the house of God. And, um, um, I just lost the train. I just lost what I was going to. Uh, the the proper time, you're going to be exalted. You see all the time statements here. Go back up into chapter four, verse number six of First Peter. The end of all things is at hand. Just asking for a friend. What would be a phrase? that you might use to explain, to describe, a time period in which the end of all things comes. Because it's at hand. The end of all things is here. It's at hand. It's near. What will you, if you're trying to explain, exp express, use a phrase to express that time period? Oh, I don't know. What phrase would you might use if you wanted to make it as simple as possible? I got a great idea. Try this one out. Try this one out. Use this, use this one to see if it works for you. What if we called the time period in which all things end as the last time? Wouldn't that be a good thing? That'd be a good thing. We're going to call that the last time. But keep in mind, that last time is not 2,000 years removed or even 300 years removed. Peter says it's at hand. And the time has come that judgment will begin. Not something in the future. Time has come now. All right, that's the first use. First Peter. What's the other use? First John. 
First John two is it eighteen? Um, um, I may need the King James here. Is it King James have maybe I need, let me pull the new King James. I think it is. It's got to be two eighteen. ESV, I think. Um, I thought it was two eighteen in the. Is it not? I may be having a translation this year. It is. It's found in First John two. Um, let me just double check one more. I had my list pulled up here. I got to pull it up again. That's what happens. I got, I got confident and closed it down my list too soon. Um, uh, yeah, it's the King James. I, I pulled, I pulled my list off the King James. That's what it is. Give me the King James. Um, First John two eighteen. I think in the King James. There it is. Okay, let me blow that up some for you so you can see it. It's about about as big as I can get it. Two eighteen in the King James. Um, little children, it is the last, ah, stink. Sorry about that. Little children, it is the last time. Even as you have heard that the Antichrist shall come, even though there are many Christ, whereby we know that it is the last time. Okay. The newer translations are even more emphatic on this phrase. They will say, little children, it is the last hour. Question. Now I know. Most commentators, scholars, date the book of 1 John sometime in the late 80s to early 90s. Okay, great. What is the last hour in AD 90? AD 90 is the last hour of what? There's, that, I don't, there's no good answer to that. The only thing you can do is to take this phrase and say what it means is, and then really expand out that last hour. You know, typically, if you're dealing with commentators, say inside of Churches of Christ, they come to First John two eighteen and they'll come to that last hour, and since they've already dated the book in eighty ninety, they're going to say that last hour is the Christian age or something like that. Okay, well then why doesn't he use last time? Last age, something something longer, last year, even last day, last hour. There's there's a, there's an emphasis here. See, I think I think First John's written pre seventy, and it's the last hour of what? Well, it may surprise you. Because I'm about to turn to Matthew chapter 24. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I believe the last hour, the last time, the point of time in which the end of all things is at hand, all of those phrases, I believe, point to exactly the same point in time, to the end of the age. The end of the age pronounced by the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I, I notice the way I say, say that, because I think the end of the age encompasses more than just the fall of a city. I think it's a mistake to, to say the end of the age is the fall of Jerusalem. There's so much more wrapped up in there than just the fall of a city. So the, the sign, the indication of the end of the age was the fall of Jerusalem. That, that will be the sign of his coming. The sign of the end of the age. Notice that, that that's what they want to know. 
what is the sign that the end the age has ended okay you've come in judgment and the end of the age has ended so i do that to do this Jude, I'm there. Go back down to Jude, verse number 17 and 18. In the last time, I take that to be the last age, the last hour, the moments before the fall of the city of Jerusalem, the end of the age. In that dark day, at the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. Have you read Romans 16? Their God is their belly. Scoffers, 2 Peter chapter 3. What is the sign of thy coming? In the last time, in the last days, scoffers will come. Where is the sign of his coming? That's what's exactly what 2 Peter 3 says. I mean, the, the, you know, the passage that comes right after 2 Peter 2, which seems to be the inspiration. Seems to be the inspiration for the book of Jude. This is now the second time that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your wine by, my mind by way of remembrance. You should remember the predictions of the holy apostles and the prophets and the commandment of the Lord Savior through your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's exactly what Jude said would happen. Jude's not talking about something different. Jude, which is a lot like 2 Peter 2, continues that commonality into 2 Peter 3, talking about the same thing. These are people who follow their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly people. To me, here's the critical identifying mark. They are devoid of the Spirit. They are devoid of the Spirit. Huh. So here are scoffers, false teachers, who have come in and, oh man, I wanted to get done this in two days. It's already 9.56. Oh man, I'm in trouble. Okay. Um, scoffers who came in, this may take three days. <laughs> um, scoffers who came in were devoid of the Spirit. False teachers devoid of the Spirit, and their doctrine is a doctrine of sensu sensuality. Have you come across that anywhere else in the Bible? Well, it's a good thing this group of people who take this class with me just got done with the study of the book of Romans. Because look where we're going. You thought we were done with Romans 8. Ha! Huh, we're right back. Those who set their mind on the flesh, what do they do? The people who set their mind on the things of the flesh live according to the flesh. The people who set their mind on the flesh are those who do not have the Spirit of God. Okay? And then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What would be a shorter way of saying that? A shorter way of saying that any, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, might that be? Somebody who is devoid of the Spirit? Yeah. How would you know that a false teacher or a teacher among you was devoid of the Spirit pre-80-70? Does 
Since he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you, do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. You would know whether or not he was devoid of the Spirit because he could or could not supply the Spirit towards you, or he could or could not work miracles among you. That's how you would know whether or not your teacher had the Spirit. Now, the teaching that was among the early church that was devoid of the Spirit was the counterfeit gospel of Galatians 1. What was the result of following the counterfeit gospel that relied on the deeds of the flesh? What was the result of that doctrine? The result of that doctrine was that you lived a life in which, as I scroll down here to get to um, uh, the, the latter part of, of uh, Galatians chapter 5, if you walk according to the desires of the flesh, you will satisfy, you will gratify the, de the desires of the flesh. Okay? Walk by the Spirit, you don't. Walk by the, this other teaching, you will. Those who led by the Spirit are not under the law. Those who walk by the flesh, then, what are they? Those are under the law. Why? Because the flesh, in Romans, taught you to control yourself by a strong application of the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, sensuality, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Huh. These are worldly people, carnal people, fleshly people, causing divisions, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, Galatians 5. Not able to represent, not, not, not able to reproduce the Spirit. They're Judaizers. People writing about, written about in the book of Jude are exactly the same people written about in the book of Romans. All right, I'm going to stop there. Man, I didn't mean to take this long to do the intro, um, but I did. So maybe it'll take us three days. I'm sorry. We're going to come back tomorrow, and I'm gonna, I've got a couple more thoughts before we actually get into the text that I need to get out. But hold on to that thought right there where we are. The void of the Spirit dealing with the Judaizers. I need to address before we get in the actual text, what is the connection between Gnosticism and the Judaizers? Okay. In, in modern understanding of these two doctrines, they're on different ends of the spectrum. I don't believe they are. I believe the Gnostics are the children of the Judaizers. Okay? And that's where we'll go. i got to wrap it up because Truth Tuesday, I just got a buzz in my ear. I think Truth Tuesday has already started, so I need to say good day to you. and I will see you back here, Lord willing, this evening for the Connect meeting at 7 o'clock with Mornay Stephanus. See you back here tomorrow. Have a good day.